Hi, I'm Cynthia Swan. Welcome to Healthy Options, a show about integrative medicine. Today, the topic is osteopathic medicine, and my guest is Dr. Stephen Curtin. Dr. Curtin graduated from St. Michael's College in 1978. At at that time, he went into his family insurance business in Massachusetts until 1985. And then he went went to the uh, University of New England College of Osteopathy, in which he graduated in 1991. His internship was at the Waterville Osteopathic Hospital from 91 to 92, and then he began his own uh, practice in Brunswick, Maine in 92 in general practice. He left the Northeast to take a, a hiatus out to Santa Fe, New Mexico. He stayed there till 2002 and moved his practice out to New Mexico and returned back to Maine in 2002 where he started his practice in Blue Hill in 2003. Well, Brunswick 2002 and Blue Hill in 2003. So currently he's working two days a week in Topsom, three days in Blue Hill. He lives in Durham, but soon to be moving to Penobscot. And he lives with his wife, his three teenage children, three dogs, and two cats. Welcome, Dr. Curtin. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks for being here. I also just want to give your... um, information numbers, and we'll do that again through the program, that your Topsom office is 207-373-0400, and your Blue Hill office is 207-374-2772. Let's get right to, um, right to it. What is osteopathic medicine? Can you give us a definition? Well, it's, it's a belief in the fact that there is uh, something intelligent which is always at work in each individual. And really to, to talk about the philosophy behind it, you have to understand a little bit about the history. Um, it was founded back in the 1870s by an MD in Missouri whose name was uh, Dr. Still, A.T. Still, we call him. Mm-hmm. And he, mainly because uh, at that time, shortly before that, his, his family, two of his family members had died from diphtheria, he began to realize there were shortcomings to the allopathic medical model. And so he began to look for another way to deal with the health in each individual. And he came up with, I mean, he said some things which, you know, got him quite a bit of trouble with his MD colleagues at the time. He said, mind, body, spirit is one thing. Now, that was back in 1870. Mm-hmm. They finally began to realize there is a mind-body connection, although spirit, they don't know what to do with that one yet. Right. He also said that the structure of the body and the function of the body is one thing. So if there's a change in any way in the structure, the function will change along with that. Now, that sounds like common sense to me and to a lot of people I talk to, but you know we've been fighting for 130 years about that idea. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the structure, it's very different than, say, the chiropractic model, which is more looking at the spinal alignment or alignment of the, the bones in, in the body. Uh, we look at the structure more through different rhythms of motion. So what do you mean by rhythms of motion? Um, well, I mean, there's, there's a myriad of them, but uh, the important ones are actually the more subtle ones. And obviously we have a lot of training in how a person moves grossly. You look at their gait, and mm-hmm. that can tell you a lot about it in each individual. But the breathing, for example, you know, we breathe 12 to 16 times each minute on average. Right. Um, although that's on average in Western culture, which we can talk a little bit more about lately, later. But um, with the breath... The lungs expand and contract. The ribs are all moving. The diaphragm moves in relationship. In fact, you can feel that rhythm expressed in the feet. 
the whole body is one. That's another concept of osteopathy, body unity. And the connective tissue of the human body is one piece. You can't separate anything out. So when you're talking about connective tissue, is it like fascia you're talking about? Well, I mean... Or even more than that. Okay, so it's every... Fascia, and we give names to different things, but if you look at the fascia and the muscles and even the organs and the bones, they are all intimately connected and related. Okay. To think of the fact that anything can be separate is is an interesting concept, but I don't even understand that because if you think about us, we come from one cell Mm -hmm. and we grow from that. So it's all moving together as one. Okay. Um, another rhythm that's important to us is the uh, rhythm of the central nervous system. It has a much slower rate. The brain and the spinal cord actually expands and contracts. And the bones of the skull, there are 28 bones there. They're moving in relationship much like the ribs move in relationship to the lungs. And the training really of an osteopath is to sense the rhythm of the body. How is the body moving? How is it expressing its health through the motion? And then we gently work with those rhythms to bring the body back into a place of efficiency. Now, the little addendum to that is that only about 50% of DOs, doctors of osteopathy, really believe in the philosophy of osteopathy. The other 50%, you'd go to them and you think, I mean, they practice much like an MD. Well, the training is... uh uh, similar. I mean, it's my understanding you have to pass the same test the MD has, right, yeah. but then you have another test on top of that as a DO that you have to... Well, the, the, the training, we have four years of osteopathic school, mm-hmm. medical school, um, and then we do internships and residencies after that, and the licensure is exactly the same right. of an MD and a DO in, in each state. The the difference comes in the philosophic approach, and okay. as, as I said a minute ago, only about 50% of the osteopaths really philosophically agree with the founder of our profession. Why is that? Well, Do um, you think? Why, why is that? Well, there are a lot of things that happen, but um, uh, sort of a short answer to that is in the early 1900s, there was a movement basically to suppress the alternative medical approach. Mm. You know, homeopathy was gaining ground. Right. Uh, the chiropractic movement was getting strong. And osteopathy, we'd been around for about 30 years, so we were starting. We had three or four schools at that point. So one of the ways that the, uh, the AMA found to suppress the com- competition was to uh, look at the education. And there was a report that came out that was called the Flexner Report, which is a government report looking at a lot of the postgraduate education in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because... <clears throat> In that report, it said, it said that the uh, chiropractic, osteopathic, and homeopathic postgraduate education was, um, sh- had shortcomings. You know, and they were talking about maybe taking away the accreditation of those different schools. And this was due to the AMA's uh, heavy lobbying well, you know, power? Or? Uh, so it was more were, governmentally, it was more yes, driven through politics, you're saying? Yeah, they had more okay. political clout than the end of the competition, obviously, because everything else was uh, really at the beginning stages of its growth. Chiropractic medicine started around the same time as osteopathic medicine. Okay. And so in response to that, what we did as a profession was we made our training much like the MD training. Okay. I mean, the good things came out of that. I, I think it did increase 
a lot of our uh, biochemical training and physiologic training. Mm -hmm. But the bad thing that came out of that, <coughs> excuse me, is that over the years we began to water down our identity, and the, you know, the, the trying to merge so much to be accepted right. by the allopathic community. Uh, would you put, uh, as we as I say that allopathic, would you say that osteopathic medicine is allopathic or it's integrative? Where would you, um, like, com how would you compartmentalize that, or wouldn't you? Would you say, no, no it's, it's really both? It's, it's separate. It's actually, you know, the, the thing is allopathic, the word means against suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, homeopathic means like suffering, so mm -hmm. they give something that will cause similar suffering in the individual. Osteopathic, you know, it's interesting, the root of that word, people say, well, osteo, you know, bone. that means bone, right. and pathic is suffering. Right. So they're like, well, bone suffering? Yeah. Well, actually, the root came more out of the Greek root because osteo really meant more structure in that. And okay. pathos is feeling for. So it fits better with oh, that when yeah. you think it's feeling for, for the, the structure. structure. And that's really what Dr. Still was getting at. So um, Now it makes sense. Yeah, but it's a completely different philosophic approach from allopathic medicine. It's actually a response to what he saw was wrong with that. And um, it's, it's almost like a bridge between integrative medicine or alternative medicine, whatever you want to call it, and allopathic medicine because we have a lot of similar training. Right. Um, so so in, in terms of the distinction, though, um, you, you have to pass the same tests. Mm -hmm. Many DOs function like MDs. Right. So, um, and the training is very comparable except for this other piece of structure, which is right. much more, um, uh, much deeper in, in the realm of osteopathy. Am I, am I correct in that? I don't want to put words we, in um, that. Every single person that goes to osteopathic school has to learn manipulation. So we learn to put our hands on right from the beginning. Now, a lot of people choose not to pursue that once they get out of their, you know, they graduate from medical school. The training in uh, structure is, or anatomy, I think is much more extensive than in an MD school from my discussions with some of my MD colleagues mm -hmm. because that's very important to us. Structure, we look at the anatomy and the embryology, how it formed is another important part of our training. And physiology, um, I think that we probably get a little more training in, in those realms. They probably get more training in pharmacology and maybe pathology yeah. than we do. Okay, makes but sense. But there's a lot of similarities. But there's, yeah, a lot of overlap. So, and, and that's interesting we talk about that because people frequently, frequently I'll hear people say, well, what's the difference between a DO and an MD? And sometimes people say, well, they're the same. And, you know, it's, it, and I think they get that because you can both function. It's like the DO can practice just as an MD in that realm. Right. But the MD cannot practice with the spinal uh, work and it, can they, trained, they unless they, they get that training? Yeah, there are many MDs actually. Well, I shouldn't say many, many, but there's a significant minority that has training in manipulative medicine. So let's talk about manipulative medicine. Okay. What is it? Uh, here we, you know, we talked about the the schism between the 50 percent of the DOs that don't mm -hmm. practice osteopathy right. and the ones who do. Then there's even breaks within the way we approach manipulation. There's a there's two different models of manipulative medicine. There's a biomechanical approach mm -hmm. and a biodynamic approach. Now, I'm from the biodynamic approach, which is actually probably the minority of the profession, maybe 5%. Well, 
What does that mean, biodynamic uh, it, approach? Really, the, the, that approach looks at the belief that there is something that's alive within us. There's an intelligence which is alive within I us. I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> which instructs the body. And the role of a person who does biodynamic manipulative osteopathy uh, is to get in touch with that intelligence and to help that or allow that to work through the individual. In other words, allow the health to manifest. In each so individual. when you say that intelligence, are you talking about a kind of body intelligence, a body awareness, a body sensitivity? What, what, do, what do you mean exactly by body intelligence? The fact that the body knows, the body's the well, carrier of everything? The body does know, but it's, the body is always working towards perfect health. It has the information within it from the moment of conception on of how it needs to be to be perfect. Now, obviously, none of us are perfect. Mm -hmm. The body is always um, compensating for all the stresses that get put on the body from the moment of conception till the present moment now. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of forces. You know, there's... Well, uh, gravity, physical, biomechanic, right? right? Physical injury, emotional insult, mm -hmm. uh, just living in this culture, which is really not in touch with a lot of the natural rhythms in itself is a stress. Mm -hmm. So all these stressors are put on the system. The body is continually compensating. And, and one other thing I'll say, when I say body, I am saying body, mind, spirit. To us, we don't separate. Uh, okay, so there isn't the distinction of just the physical body and signs and symptoms. It's that, but it's, it's everything. Right. I mean, Dr. Still, after he said body, mind, spirit is one thing, he said something that sort of confused people for many years. And he said, and the spirit is a palpable event, meaning you can feel the movement of the spirit in each individual. And he was talking about non-physical, subtle energy? forces, energy. I mean, Is energy not a good word? Energy is so generic. And it gets so – I think sometimes everybody – there's so many different definitions right. for energy that it can be confusing for people. Right. We're so, doing energy work right now talking to each other. Mm -hmm. You shake someone's hand, you're doing energy work. So when people say, are you doing energy work? Well, I say yes. I mean, we always are. But we try to define the energy that's expressing itself in the moment. And part of our training is to sense the movement of these subtle forces in the body. And you can differentiate between electromagnetic energy and hydraulic energy and all these other forms of energy through how it feels. So, so the training. So, I, I could see how this would be very distinctive. Um, there would be distinct differences amongst practitioners in this realm, because Absolutely, the yeah. perception would also be different, wouldn't it? And intuition. In each, each individual. It's so the, intuition is a part of this, right? You're as well, or, or not? Intuition. I mean, is a much used word that it's almost like energy. In yeah, a way. it's almost overused. You know, there yeah. are many senses beyond the five senses. And we group them all into intuition. Mm -hmm. um, when you begin to sense the subtle that other people aren't sensing all the time, we call it intuition. But in effect, there are, there are many different ways of perceiving these things. Our training mm -hmm. is to initially to sense it with our body. So you, when you say you sense it with your body, the moment someone walks into the room, the moment you see your patient, you're already... Right. By your, you're already that's part of your intake. It's just right. the very way they move, the way you see them breathe, the, the look on their secrets. face, right? So that you start right there, right? And so as you're watching them, um, so it, it's not only so the body, their body is giving you all kinds of feedback. 
I'm saying that, I mean, when I say body, I mean everything too. I mean, the, 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 in terms of how they are emotionally, how they speak to you, the, the timber of their voice, Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're kind of taking all of that in. And then is that, are you taking it in on, um, in terms of the intellect? Are you taking it? When does it, how, how are you kind of taking all of that in? Well, that process. The human being is really is an exquisite sensory being. I mean, we were designed to sense our environment. So really, the, the training of an osteopath is to get us back to sense the way we did or were designed to when we lived more naturally. And a human being is interacting with another human being on so many levels mm-hmm. in each moment that we're no longer aware of. Um, there is an electromagnetic field which interacts with each other. You could even talk about pheromones or chemicals which are released. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, even the MDs in the early 1900s, smell was an important part of their evaluation of an individual. Oh, they right. could tell an awful lot. So you take in information via whatever sense you need to in that moment. And, um, you know, the evaluation does begin the minute they walk into my room. And mm-hmm. you're right about the way they move, sort of the way they present themselves tells a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned I sold insurance for nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, that training actually was good for me. I, I never really enjoyed it, but it taught me how to size people up quickly. Uh, how? Um, well, any salesperson, I mean, when you go to the sales schools, you'd be surprised what they teach you to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the the whole... The whole thing is trying to get the person to buy a product, and quite often they don't want the product, but you're trying to convince them that they need it. Mm -hmm. So you have to evaluate, how am I going to get across to this person and get their interest? And the sales schools, it's amazing how much psychology they understand. Mm -hmm. So they're teaching you to evaluate the person just by the way they're holding themselves. Are they a person who receives information through their ears? Are they a visual person? In other words, if that's the case, I need to give them a big visual presentation. Oh, are they kinesthetic? It, right. It's kind all of all of things. that. Yeah, so then if they're kinesthetic, you, you try to get across, I need to get into the feeling of this person too. Mm-hmm. So that was useful. And then osteopathic training, really what that was about was learning to sense initially with my hands. But as you work with the, the subtle movement of things in the body, it, your other senses come alive. So I, I have to say the evaluation... It's not an intellectual thing. I don't think about it. But impressions begin to form out of the sensory field. Okay. So um, kind of talk us through. Somebody, do you mind doing this? Like talk no. us through. Somebody, somebody walks into your office and um, um, they, I don't know, back pain, chronic back pain, I don't know, shoulder, whatever. <laughs> Um, and they, they're, so they're coming in to you for an appointment. What's, what's the process like? Well, if you say it's a new patient, a new okay. person mm-hmm. that I'm seeing the first time. They'll come in, and, you know, we sit down, and I have a little piece of paper, and I, we take a history and physical. What, what's, in other words, they talk about their chief complaint, as we call it, mm-hmm. how, it's, how long they've had it. And we go through the process of that, and then I might talk about their prior medical history and see how that fits into their chief complaint. And then we go through a whole history of, with, with children, I usually go there, how they were in, in utero. With adults, usually we don't go that far. But okay. Talk about their whole life injuries, 
any surgery they've had, any other um, possible medical conditions, medications they're on, and try to get a, an understanding of the, the life of that individual, how their lifestyle, their diet, uh, those sorts of things. And so when we're finished with that, actually, you know, there was a Rashad Fields who was a, a Sufi healer. Mm-hmm. I read a book about his, of his years ago. I think it was called Steps to Freedom. And in it, he would do the same thing. He's in England, and people come in, and he would write down, take a history. Mm-hmm. And then he would look at the person and go, okay, that's a very nice story. And he would take the paper, and he says, I'm going to put this over here near by the door. He put the paper down by the door that had the whole history. He says, okay, I'm going to leave this over here. Now let's get to work. Okay. So in other words, it's really just a story. And one of my teachers even said to me, he says, we ought to stop taking the history because what it can do is begin to color your perception. I was going to say, it can kind of bias you. I mean, I think that happens to, um, uh, could happen in any level of of, of, of practice right. where um, your mind starts to formulate, oh, well, maybe it's this. Okay, maybe it's this. And you start being in your head. Yeah, and it does, it does every time. And the minute you get in head, you actually decrease your sensitivity. You, know, okay. you cannot. It's actually impossible when you're in a focused type of thinking awareness to sense at any level other than the sympathetic nervous system level. Okay. We can talk a little bit more about yeah, that. But, yeah. um, but he was saying just put your hands on them and, and feel let, what's let going the, on. let the body tell the story. And really that's, that's the key of the whole treatment. I still feel it's important to form some relationship with the person you know, they think, who is this weird guy? Just well, I, I think, I, yeah, up. I think there is that element where people come in and they, it's like that fine dance you do yeah. in an interview or something. It's like the, you're you're talking first because it's also about um, helping them to be at ease, helping them to feel comfortable, exactly, right. because you're going to be putting your hands on someone that's a stranger in a way. Right. And so when you have that dialogue um, beforehand, it's like that, okay, it's okay, I, I can trust this person, well, yeah, you know. And in this culture, we're very uncomfortable with touch. Mm. Um, myself, I, you know, I touch people all the time, right. so I don't have the same feeling. So me, I'll just put my hands on someone. Well, we say and, this culture is touch-deprived. Right. I mean, I've traveled overseas. It's amazing how, much time in a conver- how many times in a conversation I will see uh, foreigners touch one another, mm-hmm. kiss, hug, grab. I mean, it's amazing to me, and I think, wow, Americans, by yeah. and large, <laughs> are, are pretty different right. that way. So I, I think it's important to get to the point where they're comfortable with me. And then I even, I even tell them I'll have a little discussion because nobody really understands osteopathic medicine, very few people. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll say something like, do you know what kind of work I do? And most people say no. And so I'll talk about some of the things we're talking about right. and what I'm going to do and what my intention is with that individual. So that it, that also increases the comfort level and makes them realize, oh, that's what he's doing. So when when then when you start the hands-on, your, your mm-hmm. actual, um, well, intake treatment, do you start, like, is there a process? You start at the head, start at the feet. Do you feel the rhythm, the cranial sacral rhythm? I mean, where where do you go? Or does um, it is it different with everybody on the table? It's different with everyone. Okay. Um, Dr. Jim Jealous was my major teacher, and he, he said, he said, what we need to do is really take the osteopathic vital signs. And okay. there are certain things we do look at in each individual. The, the uh, movement of the breath. Mm-hmm. Is it moving down into the pelvis? Is it expressing itself or with it? vitality? Uh, the movement of the central nervous system, is it decreased in its amplitude? 
you, you, when you put your hands on people, you can feel tissue tension. How mm-hmm. do the tissues feel? Is a bogginess to them? Is there strength in this individual? Is this person completely worn out? Mm-hmm. So you begin to feel many different things the second you put your hands on them. I quite often start at the feet just because it's less threatening to people. Uh, okay. Right? So they're lying there feeling somewhat vulnerable, particularly if they don't know me and they've never been to an osteopath before. I'll just put my hands on the feet and I'll even look at some structural things like uh, leg length. Is the, are the legs... There's a discrepancy in leg length, mm-hmm. which there is in a great deal of people. Right. And that seems to be a, a way of touching into the person. Say, oh, your left leg's a half inch shorter than your right. And, oh, my God, really? Mm-hmm. And usually by the end of the treatment, it's equal, so they think some sort of magic happened. But yeah. it's just, you know, that's pretty simple. <laughs> I have to say, I do know people who go to you, and your nickname is Stevie Wonder, not the musician. <laughs> I've wondered if I was blind always, or something. I've always gotten a kind of a, a chuckle out of that, but yeah. So, so it does. So, so you're saying they feel like it's kind of it's magic. Um, well, in a way. the thing is, we in this culture don't sense anything beyond our five senses. So, when something happens outside of that realm, you know, we we want to call it miracle or supernatural. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely natural, and it was natural to us for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. We've lost touch with a lot of that. So to me, there's nothing magic about it. It, it. You know, Dr. Still was a genius, and he came upon this philosophical approach to healthcare, which works. It's pretty remarkable. And I've had some incredible teachers, you know, just blew me away, mm-hmm. the teachers I had over the years. And I love the work. So if, if you have a, a philosophic um, way of treating someone that works... You've had good teachers and you enjoy what you're doing. It's really difficult to fail. How how do it's it's in, it's interesting to me that you say, "Well, I've had good teachers." How it's like to me in a way, it's like how can someone teach that, you know, what what, what we're speaking about? Right. How, so when you say you're um you've had good teachers, what was it that made them good? How how did they how were they able to really bring this concept of um picking up beyond the five senses and this um, demonst- this being able to really feel the subtleties you're talking about. I don't know if you've ever heard the term coyote teacher. It's, it's a Native Coyote's American. Coyote's a trickster right. in, in the in, shamanic, right? Yeah, and in, in the in indigenous or in the Native American, I'll use that one, um, framework, a coyote teacher is one who's teaching you and you don't know it's happening. Oh, right? okay. And they're trying to, to sort of distract your attention to allow the teaching to happen. I spent many hours as a student and early on in my training in the offices of some of these people. And basically, I would just have my hands on trying to feel what was going on. And uh, Dr. Jealous, for example, I spent quite a bit of time with him. And he'd say, oh, you see that? And I, you know, I was lost. I'm like, no, right. I don't see anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And then it would be interesting because sometimes three, four, five years later, all of a sudden I understood what he was teaching me. There was a way that they had of putting the experience into my system for it to record. At the same time, they were distracting my mind because that gets in the way all the time. You know, you're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking. When are you thinking? You're missing everything. And and I, you know, I didn't understand that at the time. And now, because I do quite a bit of teaching myself, I understand what the role of a teacher is. It's allow the person or actually create the space for the person to have an experience into and allow it to be their experience because if you'd say, this is what you need to feel, then you've created an experience which isn't real. 
And each person will perceive it differently. Right. So the teachers I had were remarkable at that. I mean, it really, as I think back and now, you know, I sometimes get goosebumps how wonderful these people were at um, teaching this form of perceiving, which is, like you said, it's a difficult thing because it doesn't fit with what goes on in our culture most of the time. Excellent. Having said that, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Healthy Options on WERU 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 Bangor, and we're online, WERU.org. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. I'm Cynthia Swan, and you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU, your community radio station. Our topic today is osteopathic medicine, and my guest is Dr. Stephen Curtin, um, who practices in Topsom and also in Blue Hill. And um, Dr. Curtin, I'm going to let's dive right into this. I'm going to read this. Um, piece that you sent me because I found it really intriguing and I think it's um it will be a good springboard for us to talk about this in okay. depth and um your feeling about osteopathic medicine and you um emailed me as an osteopath I am trained to sense the movement of the subtle in life of the subtle in life this training of our perce- perceptual awareness to sense life's movement around us informs my everyday life One of my major interests is to awaken myself and those I work with to the information which is contained in the natural rhythms which surround and infuse us. The human being is designed as an exquisitely sensitive organism able to sense and interact with life in a way that our culture has not only forgotten about but also attempts to train out of each individual through the overdevelopment of the intellect. 
This has profound implications which weaken the health of the individual and therefore also weakens the health of the planet as a whole. We are definitely parts of an interrelated whole. I feel that we are to the earth as cells are to the living body. Each cell swims in a sea of information which instructs the cell as to its function in each movement. The earth is continually informing us, and I feel it is the role of each individual to become perceptually alive and awaken to the instructions which surround us. Wow. I, when I read that, I was like, wow, that, that, there's like, I can think of 20 questions right in that <laughs> um, piece that you, you sent me about, um, about this form of medicine. So let's dive into it. We talked a little bit about the subtle, but I'm going to let you take it from there. Okay. Well, you know, I mentioned before that uh, the human being was really designed as a sensory being. We're not intellectual beings. And when we lived in a more natural way, uh, we lived in this perceptual field. The indigenous people, actually the, the Bushmen, uh, if you've ever read any Lawrence Van Der Post's wonderful stories about the Bushmen, one of the things he said that the Bushmen lived with their awareness at the edge of the horizon. Now, to us, that's sort of a concept. It's like, wow, at the edge of the horizon? You mean as far as I can see? But to them, it's, they had a sense of their awareness breathing. It would actually expand out and contract in, and it would take in information with each breath. Mm-hmm. So looking at that way uh, of being... Um, you know, and it's something that's my personal little study is how would we get back to that type of awareness? So I've done a lot of research and study and looking at my patients and living in my own body mm-hmm. uh, on how can we possibly get back to, the, to living in a way that we have more uh, perceptual awareness of our surroundings. One of the things that's important is in our society, uh, we teach people to focus their awareness, to read, now we're looking at computers and TVs. We train people to look into the eyes of the other. There is no mammal in the wild that focuses its attention on another mammal unless it's setting up a prey-predator relationship other than humans. There is no other mammal that does that. So here we are focusing our awareness. What that does is whenever we go into focused awareness, the central nervous system senses that there's a threat at hand. It can't do anything but. And the sympathetic nervous system, which is nicknamed the fight-or-flight part of mm-hmm. us, becomes much more active, and we become hypervigilant. The physiology of the whole body shifts, and it puts us in a mode where we can barely sense with our five senses. We can't sense the inner state. It's actually theoretically possible, impossible to sense the body itself when the sympathetic nervous system is high because we're designed to look outside of ourselves to find the threat. Mm-hmm. So with that, I begin to realize that um, we have to get more into what's considered parasympathetic tone. The parasympathetic nervous system is sort of the balancing of the sympathetic. They work together. Okay. And the nickname of the parasympathetic is rest and digest. Mm-hmm. Now, wouldn't you rather live in rest and digest versus fight or fight flight? Or flight. <laughs> but the fight or flight or sympathetic tone of most people in this culture is way too high. It's completely out of sync. It's half the reason for a lot of the chronic diseases is the imbalance of what's called the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. Because you're saying people are in this state of hypervigilance. And it's almost always like looking what's out there. 
Absolutely. And it changes the physiology completely. Well, it's kind of being in a state of fear, right? It's like, because if you're constantly looking over your shoulder, what's out there, it's constantly setting up this fear state. And if you're in a state of fear, you're blocking relaxation, you're blocking love. You know, I'm I'm thinking of other philosophies that say fear and love can't cohabitate. You, you know, it's either one or the other. It's you don't get to have both impossible. of them together. It's not even, you know, yes, when you look at a lot of these... Um, Bruce Lipton's work, actually. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at a lot of these different, even religious traditions, what they were teaching was physiologically efficient to be that way. Now, I don't mean to sound like a scientist, but that's yeah. sort of my approach to that. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the physiology and see that when we're in that fear place or that sympathetic nervous system place, it has us totally out of balance. We can't sense our surroundings... In a, in a way other than threat. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, people begin to take on, we begin to live in our brainstem, which is where the sympathetic nervous system is. And when you're in your brainstem, the world is either food, enemy, or mate. Mm-hmm. That's how a reptile looks at the world. We become reptilian sort of reptilian. Reptilian brain. People talk Absolutely. about the reptilian brain. So, you know, we look out in the world, it's either like if we're in, in the insurance business, as I was mm-hmm. in sales, that's a potential food if I can make money off them. If they're a competitor, they're an enemy. And if it was a good-looking woman, she might have been a potential mate. But that's the all you can see in that type of awareness, mm-hmm. which is interesting. So one has to get into a more parasympathetic tone to begin to sense the inner state. The parasympathetic nervous system was developed along with when the mammals began to develop. And we became warm-blooded, so we had to sense the body. Reptiles don't have to sense the body. And the parasympathetic nervous system was sort of an outreach of that um, evolution of the whole central nervous system. So in order to get into the parasympathetic nervous system, one of the things we have to learn to do is get out of this focused state. So one of the things I've worked with and I teach my patients is to sense in the periphery more. So we talk about even just learning to get their eyes into 180-degree awareness. That in itself, because we are a visual species, when we get our eyes into the periphery, in other words, seeing 180 Mm -hmm. degrees rather than focusing, the other five senses follow because we're visual. If we were a wolf and we had 80 million receptors in our nose, well, I have to teach them to get their nose into the periphery, so to speak. So... By teaching people to get in the periphery, we begin to get a more parasympathetic tone and we begin to sense things totally differently. The world takes on a whole different color to it. So what might be one exercise listeners could do to do this, well, just to increase that? Well, just as simply as you, can, you put your hands in front of your face and wiggle your fingers and then put them out to each side. So out to the sides. vision. And so you want to see both hands out in the periphery at the same time. So both eyes are in the periphery. What people will find is that there is one eye which is dominant. It's usually the right eye in most people. And that eye will have trouble getting into the periphery. The left eye will just float out there nicely saying, oh, I love it out here. The right eye won't want to focus. Mm-hmm. But I, I teach a lot of my patients that. And that's the first step. Then I teach them other things which are right. a little more complex. Mm-hmm. But when they get to the point where they can live with their vision in the periphery, the whole nervous system changes. Now, Just I, by doing that. Absolutely. I, you know, I started doing that maybe 14 years ago. And um, I have my vision. As I'm looking at you, I see the mm-hmm. whole room. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's how I stay with, with my vision 90% of the time. Now, if I read, I can't do that. Right. If I'm looking at the computer or watching TV, God forbid, 
I'd, I'd have to look at it. So it's like turn down the TV time and PC right. time. Yeah. yeah. Also the EMFs. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things there. But whenever we look at those things, we're forced into focus. And so there are a lot of people that spend hours and hours and hours on the computer. And that in itself creates pathology. What about meditation, though? Doesn't a meditation practice also allow some that people, expansion? Some people. It's interesting because... Um, there are some people, when they meditate, they go into this over-focused state. It's quite interesting. And so if I'm working with them and I sense something going on, I might even say, okay, just, just you do your usual meditation as I have my hands on their body and I try to feel what the body's doing in response. And I think because our nervous systems aren't trained to perceive, we don't even know what the natural state is. And depending on who your teacher is in meditation, there can be a lot of what I see is physiologically um, harmful ways of meditation. Like, um, like, like what you mean when people are just going too inward? You're saying to? Um, no, they're they're going into an overfocused state. You can feel the sympathetic nervous system responding. Now, you know, people have all these experiences, but they don't know what they're supposed to experience. So, anything that's an experience which is different from their everyday state it, right. to them is a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Even when you heighten the sympathetic nervous system in a way, you'll have interesting experiences. Not saying that it's something that's physiologically helpful. Okay. All right. So the meditation overall, yes, I very much support it. Uh, people will say, do I meditate? And I actually say no because my work is a meditation in a way. You know, meditation... I think it's how you define meditation, too. Well, meditation I, is listening. Prayer is talking. I mean, in the early traditions, prayer and meditation was your conversation with the divine. And whenever, like you and I having a conversation, sometimes one is speaking, that's prayer, and sometimes one is listening, that's meditation. So in my way of thinking, I think one should be meditating all the time. In other words, listening all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think of developing these other types of or perceptual awareness so that you're always in a listening state and you can sense, as I mentioned in the, in the little writing there, this, the movement of the subtle in us, in, in the world around us. The indigenous people, the, what they could feel, it would sort of blow your mind. You know, they actually could feel the movement of every single living thing in the space around them. They uh, talked Because they about, were so tuned in, you're saying they were listening. They, that's all they did. They weren't thinking all the time. You, you know, the, for, we'll think of an example of a, the little kid going out with uh, the elder little boys, three or four years old, who's lived in this perceptual field from the moment of conception on. Mm-hmm. And the elder realizes it's time to take him out and teach him some other things. So takes him for a little walk. He says, you know, come on, grandson, we're going for a walk. And the little boy says, oh, this is great. So, and the elder says, now, can you feel that? And the little boy's like, well, I feel something. Much like when we are looking at colors and learning to differentiate between red and blue, well, all they are is a different wavelength of light which is right. bouncing off something, interacting with our eye, and we learn to say that's red and that's blue. They learn to differentiate these wavelengths of energy which are interacting with their um, perceptual field. They'll know, well, the grandfather will say, well, that's the wolverine. And the little boy's like, oh, that's the deer. Now, these things might be miles off. Mm-hmm. And and as time goes on, they actually learn to realize that's the wolverine that's hungry. That's a wolverine that's injured. 
That's a wolverine that's looking for a mate. So they actually learn to differentiate physiologic state of each species, mm-hmm. much like we learn to differentiate fine nuances of color as time goes right. on. It's not just red Well, and the blue. naturalists say you can do this with birds, too, with, uh, you know, when you know what to listen for. You know when right. one's alarmed. You know when one's, you know, it's uh, predatory. You know, you, you can understand the states. Yeah, there's a lot of information out there that we've sort of forgotten about. You know, they, they talked about that every living thing gave off a ring of concentric disturbance. So it's like you drop a pebble in a pond, you know, the wave right. that goes re- out. Mm-hmm. Every living thing on the planet emits that and has different frequencies to it. So it's passing through this, the, the field around us. You know, the, the, elder, the ancients used to call it the ethers. Mm-hmm. Um, Space. And they, because they've felt this before, will know, well, that's what a wolverine feels like and that's what a deer feels like. That's the type of awareness I'm interested in. You know, and the getting your vision in the, into the periphery is the first step in retraining the nervous system to be sensitive to the surroundings rather than looking for fear all the time. So it's get out of your head and get into your body? Good way to put it, yeah. I mean, that's the, if you think about uh, you know, a deer walking through the woods, it's not walking through going, oh, my God, what am I going to have for supper tonight? I can't believe what the kids did. And did you see that deer, what she was wearing? You know, they're not stuck in that, the thoughts about all this stuff, which we do. We're continually going through whatever. Mm-hmm. They're living in this perceptual field. And when something comes into their field that alerts them, they feel something, they then engage the mind as a tool of the perceptions. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is as soon as you engage your mind, the sympathetic nervous system actually is activated. The only time in a mammal that the mind is engaged is when there's something to attend to. We're the other way around. We've got the mind continually active, and we think that the perceptions are a tool of the mind. It's the other way around when we live naturally. The perceptions inform the mind and tell it, I need you to analyze this situation. And whenever it's activated it then activates the whole system into some sort of the something I need to attend to. So we actually cannot sense when we're thinking. Now, I'm just, this brings to mind, though, in the world as it is, though, I mean, if somebody is, like, into a, a major city, can they, are they going to benefit by being more in that realm versus the other realm? Uh, well, you know, of initially perception it's versus It's, you know... Hearing develops in utero, right? And the little child in there is hearing all these sounds. Mm -hmm. And we learn very early on to filter out the information we don't need and attend to what we need to with our hearing. So we're out in the world, and there are so many sounds coming to us. You know, the, the little tympanic membrane is vibrating all the time, sending all this information to the central nervous system. Central nervous system learns... I'm not going to pay attention to all. It's sitting there sort of with something and says, oh, I need to attend because someone called my name. Mm-hmm. Or an alarm goes off. So there are certain things that get our awareness. It's the same when you live in the periphery. There's a pile of information coming to you. It's just an incredible amount of information. And obviously when you're in a city, the disturbances are just unbelievable as opposed to being in the woods. Right. So I tell people when they start to work with this I, I, I tell them it's a form of meditation initially. I said, you know, sit down in a chair or lie down, learn to get your eyes in the periphery. When you're comfortable with your keeping your vision at 180 degrees 
and it's not difficult for you. Mm -hmm. Then start to walk around your house like that. And so that increases the complexity a little bit. And they're walking around. Because you're adding another task. Right. And when they get comfortable with that, they say, okay, then go into Blue Hill, for example. Go into a quiet city Mm -hmm. or a quieter area and start to work with that till they get to the point where they've been doing this for a while. Then they can go to New York City and not be overwhelmed by the sensory input. Okay. But initially, no, it's not where I would start someone. And living in the city, it's difficult to learn this awareness. Right. I would think it, it, it would be. You almost have to kind of remove yourself Yeah, you need to probably have to take a retreat somewhere, go to the <laughs> monastery. I, I was thinking of a naturalist that I was listening to about um, the, the name of the series is Native Eyes, and I can't recall his name. He's out in the Pacific Northwest. And he, he's, he's the one that uh, he, his quote is, um, uh, you need to lose your mind and come to your senses. Perfect. And he said that uh, a true native, it, it doesn't, a, a true native, it's not about um, your birthright, whether, whether you're Native American. He said, mm-hmm. but a true native knows how to do that. And, and that's what being a native is. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's, when I use the term indigenous, what that really means to me is natural. Right. And it's the same thing as native. If, if one lives naturally, which is rare. Um, well, in, in our culture, it, it's, I, I think it's almost impossible not impossible right <laughs> <laughs> okay I need you to expand my horizons here the uh, the culture doesn't recognize this type of awareness is important it recognizes see the thing is if you really look at our culture and even in our education process it's about developing a good producer consumer mm-hmm. um, that's what public education to from my perspective is all about so a good producer-consumer, you don't really want to have very aware. And if a person lives in this natural awareness, they would begin to realize they don't need a lot. So it runs counter to the forces that sort of fuel our system. Well, it would also bring up um, greater distinction or, or um, the, the unique qualities amongst individuals, right. it seems to me. Yeah. Um, because... When you're the other way, it's it's kind of like about fitting in. When you're talking about your, this, what we're discussing here, it seems to me that it's not anything at all about fitting in. It's um, your own uniqueness um, would really come to the forefront. Right. Your I mean, own individuality. You each have a role. Right. You know that. You know, I, I said something about an intelligence at work. Well, that intelligence is informing us as to what our role is, and we can't all have the same role. Mm-hmm. Right, so it definitely we are unique, and we have different ways of perceiving, and we have different gifts. Um, but you know, the the key of this, what I'm talking about, is just receiving information in a different way and accepting the fact that something is informing us and guiding us. That the Aborigines, they used to go on um, walkabouts. Mm-hmm. You know? Suddenly, one morning. A group of them would meet at the same place. Now, nobody said we're going to meet at 4 o'clock right. you know, on Tuesday <laughs> to go for a little walk. They'd wake up, and they would realize there's just an inf- informed, something mm-hmm. informed them, you're going. They would take nothing with them. They would then walk out into the outback, which was a forbidden, forbidding place. I mean, this is a desert. Right. There's hardly People any People die water. there. Right. <laughs> and they would take nothing with the full knowledge that they would be taken care of. Now, they didn't even have the thought that I'll be taken care of. It just was part of who they were. You know, we think, 
you know, oh, I'll be taken care of. But that's actually, there's a fear there. Mm-hmm. They just get up, they go. And water and food were always available to their needs. They're, what would happen is this information would come to them. They'd be informed mm-hmm. as to where to be mm-hmm. in order to be taken care of. So they were fully in communication with this intelligence that was always available to them. Interesting, yeah. yeah. I, I want to switch gears here because we're kind of down to the wire in time, and I, okay. I want to just ask you a question of um, why did you become a DO? And and why um, and and you're not practicing as as many of your colleagues very allopathically, like the conventional MDs. Um, so I mean I know based on what you've said earlier, but I want you just to what what led you there? Okay, well this is an interesting story too. I was like I said I was selling insurance in the family mm-hmm. business. I was not very happy. We were living in Massachusetts. I was married. I didn't have any children at the time, mm-hmm. and my wife. Uh, started to have, you know, double vision, severe headaches. She really got quite sick and was basically bedridden. And um, we went to Mass General and got all the evaluation, and she was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis. Wow. And she was quite sick, mm-hmm. and basically all they could offer to us was, well, you know, come back when you have the next attack. Right. And at that time, when you have your first attack in those days, they didn't really do anything treatment-wise. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, next attack, she's basically bedridden. She can't drive because she's got double vision. Right. So my sister was actually seeing Dr. Jim Jealous up in uh, Bridgeton, Maine, and he's the one who became my teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said to me, well, why don't you go see this osteopath I see? And at at that point, I was three hours away from, you know, I was down near Boston. And I remember thinking, why am I going to go to the middle of nowhere, Maine, to see this osteopath? I don't even know what it is. Right. When I've been to the Mass General, these are the best doctors in the world. But as I was thinking that, something else said to me, go, you Just dummy. Just do it. Yeah. So we go, and I would say uh, maybe within three treatments, the symptoms change dramatically. And, you know, to this day, my wife is in what's considered remission. Wow. But... Um, the healing process was really interesting, too. I mean, that's a whole hour uh-huh. story in itself. But I became very intrigued by well, what's going on here, yeah. you know, seeing what was going on with her as he was working with her, which to me, he just basically put his hands on her, and I'm sitting there going, what's this guy doing? Right. There's nothing like experience. No. It's, <laughs> I, it's like I say about body all of these modalities, you have to experience right. them. I mean, we can talk about them forever. But it's the experience Absolutely. that really is the amazing yeah. teacher. Yeah, it was. It was. It really blew me away. And, and so I remember saying to him, "You know, what are you doing?" Blah blah blah. I'm asking all these questions, and he said to me, "Steve, if you want to learn about this, you got to go to school." And I was very unhappy in what I was doing. Uh-huh. My heart jumped in that moment. And said, "That's what I want to do." Wow. So I came to school thinking that's what osteopathy was. I was a little surprised that a great deal of them didn't practice that way. <laughs> yeah. I was quite naive in, in some ways. But that's what I wanted to do from the beginning, so that's the part of osteopathy that I was intrigued by, and I really reached for that, that type of the training. What do you hope for in the future for this medicine that you practice, for, your, for mm. osteopathic medicine? What's your hope? Um, well, it, it's difficult because I hope that it would grow, but the interesting thing is that the osteopaths who practice the way I do, I think, are becoming less. Mm. Uh, for a while, there was a growth 
but I see this, a lot of the students that I see now have less training in the perceptual skills than I did just, what, 15, 16, 17 years ago. So I, I'm not real optimistic, to be honest with you, about okay. the future of our profession. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful, and I do everything I can to try to train students to this type of being. But, um, so but I don't you're not really seeing it right now. But, but, you're, but, it, so, but, your, but your hope would be that it will still be available. In the There's future. an intelligence always at work on this planet, so I never can understand what it's trying to do. And if it chooses to diminish osteopathy, then so be it. <laughs> right, but things will change. I hope. Things, one thing we can always count on, things, things never stay the same. Right. <laughs> um, we have to wrap it up here, but I really wanted to thank you, Dr. Curtin, for um, coming today to talk about osteopathic medicine with listeners. And um, I just want to give your uh, contact numbers again for those who have questions or seek more information from you. It's Dr. Stephen Curtin, uh, DO, and the TOPSUM number is 373-0400. Of course, it's area code 207 here in Maine. And then um, Blue Hill number is 374-2772. And um, special thanks to Joel Mann for engineering the show my renaissance man so grateful to him and um thank you to you dr curtin thank you, Cindy. and thank you listeners i hope you'll um tune in to healthy options future programs we're always on the first wednesday of the month at 10 a.m other cohort co-hosts uh, andre bella and Rhonda Feynman. we rotate and we um all encourage you to always continue to exercise your healthy options thanks <laughs>